It's a new year, and you're probably hoping to have the best year ever on the bike. And a good place to start your search for the best year ever on the bike is VeloNews.com and our new Active Pass and VeloNews Pass digital memberships. Right now, we have a great deal going on. You can get a full year of VeloNews Pass for $41.65 or a full year of Active Pass for $84.15. Both of those get you access to the exclusive content on VeloNews.com. And I'm looking here at the top 10 Active Pass stories of last year, and it's a smattering of great information about purchasing bicycles, new bike technology, training, and some great stuff on the bikes of the year. Uh, last year, our bike of the year was the Trek Checkpoint, and our road bike of the year, the Giant TCR. And both of those stories have great inside information on why these bikes are so innovative and cool, the technology used in them, and why, if you are searching for a fast 2021, you should think about the Trek Checkpoint or the giant TCR. Again, you can learn more by going to velonews.com forward slash active pass. That's velonews.com forward slash active pass to get all the information on Velonews Pass and active pass. Okay, let's get on with the podcast. Welcome back to the Vell News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you a day later than normal this week. I'm recording this on a Wednesday. Happy New Year, first podcast of 2021. And uh, I'm sure that you, like me, like our guest on the phone, Andrew Hood, we're just feeling so incredibly refreshed from a holiday season uh, that we had a couple days to, you know, take a break from work, ride our bikes around, have some fun, spend time with families, and now we're back at it. And and maybe we actually are happy to get back at it because we had so much time with our families and friends. I know that uh, here in my extra room in the house, um, yeah, I'm feeling a little, a little pep in my step, getting ready for 2021. How about you, Andrew Hood? How are you feeling just rolling into the new year? Yeah, this year, uh, the COVID year it, it, over here kept kept everybody socially distanced. So uh missed out on some of the massive meals that usually don't bode well for my middle girth. And uh, so to avoid those is quite a good thing, actually. There's some blessing in disguise there for the old COVID, COVID uh, restrictions. So my... my uh, you know my fighting weight going into 2021 is gonna be a little bit lighter right off this right off the right off the start. I wish I could share that sentiment, but I did a really good job um, solo with like cheese plates, charcuterie, a lot of chocolate, a lot of sweets, a lot of cookies. The Dryer household had a lot of holiday cookies sent our way, and uh, I definitely indulged. I always look at those things and I'm like, you know, I'm just gonna have one and then you know get rid of it or, or not eat it. But um, I'm like, I'm like a dog that has access to the dog food bowl. I just eat it. So like if I see it, it's like most people have that switch in their head. That's like, Oh, you've eaten a meal. You don't need to eat anymore. You can go on with your day. I don't have that. And so I just eat and eat and eat until all the cookies are gone. And uh, now I have to go ride my bike and burn off all those cookies. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's tough to, it's tough to say no to the cookie, especially when you have a little kid around the house, you know, so Santa Claus is delivering the goodies and, then Freddie's uh, taking care of business there, it sounds like. Uh, so it's uh, a new year, but same old cycling. We have news and pressing stories to get to, namely the uh, stories that broke earlier this week that Mark Hershey is ter has terminated his contract with Team DSM, formerly Team Soundweb, and is uh, potentially moving onwards to UAE Team Emirates. Unconfirmed, but that's the rumor right now. Um, we have Froome News to talk about. And then second half of the podcast 
Hoodie, we have an interview that you did with Cameron Wirf, Ironman, a cyclist turned Ironman triathlete turned back to World Tour cyclist Cameron Wirf. Um, give us a little taste. What did you and Cam talk about in your interview? Yeah, I caught up with him earlier uh, at the tail end of last year after the Vuelta a España. And just wanted to catch up with him about how his season went, you know, back at uh, Ineos. And he stepped away from cycling 2013-14, you know, stepped away from the World Tour and really dedicated himself to uh, to uh, triathlon and, and, you know, Kona. I mean, he's really getting close to the podium. And he's uh, he's such an interesting guy to talk to. You know, he's a former rower, turned into a cyclist, turned into a triathlete. You know, so the guy has this, this huge, massive natural engine. And uh, he's just one of the nicer guys in the bunch. He's good friends with Chris Froome. And uh, it was interesting getting his take on where it all fits in, you know, how, how he's using cycling. His return to uh, Ineos this year was meant to be as kind of a fill-in role player because he shares the same coach. Tim Carrison is his triathlete coach. Of course, Tim Carrison is the head coach in Ineos. So they brought him in this year uh, at the beginning of this past year, 2020, it's kind of a you know a bench player, a slot player that he could stick in when they might have some injuries or some illnesses and just need an extra warm body. And then as it turned out, you know, with a reduced calendar and every, all the races overlapping, that he ended up getting quite a few race days in and ended up, ended up racing the entire Vuelta España, which was not really part of his initial plans because that the time of year is when he'd be normally at Kona. And um, so he, he came out of that experience this past season, you know, really optimistic about how and if and when he can do triathlon, triathlon, big triathlons again, how this full season of racing uh, at the World Tour level is going to really help translate into better performances in, in the triathlon. So pretty interesting stuff. That's interesting. You know, over the years, I, look, I'm a fan of triathlon. I used to participate in a lot of them, follow Ironman racing. There were all of these stories about these Ironman triathletes who were really good on the bike and the question of like how they would measure up against – you know, a pro tour, world tour cyclist. And I remember, I think it was like 2002, 2003, the German uh, triathlete Norman Stadler went and like spent some time at Team Telecom's training camp, you know, and like rode with them for a week or two. And, and after the week, he was so completely hosed that he had to like leave early. Um, and he was like the best cyclist in Ironman triathlon at the time. And, um, I think that, you know, maybe those guys were just like, they're just riding a little bit faster for some reason, <laughs> as we as we now know. But uh, at that point in time, poor Norman Stadler could not keep up. But now we have Cam Wirth, who um, I wouldn't say seamlessly, but slotted in pretty easily and rode, raced the Giro and did uh, did a lot of work for Richard Carapaz. Yeah, I remember there's a few years ago, uh, one of the Spanish riders, was one of the Spanish triathletes. Moya, I can't remember, the, it was actually his name, uh, one of the top Spanish triathletes. Same thing, kind of crossed over. I think it was might have been Kelme or, you know, this is 10 years ago. First race he did, he crashed and broke his collarbone. Uh, so, you know, right, I mean, riding a, riding a triathlon, you know, top trial bike in a group and a pace line, no, that's tricky. But it's not the same as humping along on 45Ks on a narrow road full of uh, potholes and traffic islands and and 10 guys across the road. And that's the thing that Cameron Worth has is his strength, you know, is that you know, he can't, you know, he used to be a pro racer. So I asked him, you know, did you have an adjustment period coming back into the world tour? And he said, no, he said that he really felt comfortable on the bike when he came back to racing. Of course, he said what really cost him the most was the accelerations, the change of speeds, because that's a big change from what, you know, when you're on in a triathlete, you're just hammering up that pace 
uh, on a time trial bike. Whereas in a road race, of course, it's, the action is much more fluid. But he said that uh, that he said that one of the big changes he saw from when he left the sport, uh, you know, eight nine years ago and came back this past season was just how high the levels become. He said back in the day, a break would go, everyone would sit, everyone would chat. He goes. Now he didn't. He says he didn't speak to anybody the entire any race he went to because he was so concentrated on his job and where he had to be. And that said, that that's the big intensity level at the World Tour these days. Cool. Well, great interview with Cameron Werf coming up second half of the show. Uh, before we get to that, we got to talk about the news of the day, news of the week. Uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, and yesterday, Tuesday, we're sitting at my computer uh, perusing Twitter like so many media people do. When all of a sudden, Team DSM, formerly Team Sunweb flashed along a tweet that said Team DSM had reached a settlement agreement with Mark Hershey, and that was it. And he clicked on the link, and Team DSM, you know, there's to their site, reached a settlement agreement with writer Mark Hershey to terminate his present employment before the original end date of December 31st, 2021. It has been made agreed that the agreement will be terminated with immediate effect and that no further comment will be made. Yada, yada, yada. Long, term, long story short, Mark Hershey, the breakout star of 2020, Team Sunweb's most valuable rider uh, terminated his agreement and and has gone elsewhere. Um, in the hours following this story, there's been chatter that linked him to Team UAE Emirates. That is not confirmed at the time that we're recording this. But basically, the story that the picture that kind of emerges is like Hershey got bought out of his contract and is going someplace else. Um, is that an accurate reading of this story up to this point, Andrew Hood? Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. Um, yeah, I mean, the sources are whispering that it is indeed UAE uh, under the terms of these kinds of deals uh, under the under the UCI kind of a legal framework. They have to wait a month before he can race again. They might sit on this for a whole month before they confirm it. I don't think that's going to happen. But um, according to the contract rules, he has to sit out for one month until the contract clears and the new contract gets signed up. But yeah, it sure sounds like that... Uh, you know, it's one of these typical cases where you have an agent working for you. In this case, it sounds like it's Fabian Cacciolata and his new management company he's working with. Um, you know, uh, part of the part of a uh, of a of an agent's job is to go out there and, and and shop their riders. And it sounds like there was other conversations more than just uh, UAE. I think all the bigger teams were trying to get Hershey. When a rider like that has such a breakout season, you know, the Ineoses, the Yumbo Vismas, those kinds of teams. Are going to be making inquiries and now we're seeing you know uae really stepping up as one of these bigger players that has the money to sign riders um you know especially with aru also off contract this year off the team that opens up some room at uae you know they've done a good job of recruiting and bringing in young riders and hershey fits perfectly into that kind of team philosophy of just kind of building stars from within hershey's a little bit different of course he's already made his name for himself in this great season but an agent is going to be telling his riders like hey you know, you can triple, quadruple your salary this year. You know, don't don't finish this season out. You can have that money now. You know, we don't know. We can only speculate about how much money Hershey's on. You know, most neo pros come in on this minimum salary, which is about thirty-eight thousand euros a year, thirty-five thousand euros a year, two-year uh, guaranteed bottom, guaranteed minimum. That's not the guarantee. You know, that's not saying that they don't get paid more. You know, Remco of Enipool when he signed with Quickstep as a as a you know, rookie, he wasn't getting paid thirty eight thousand dollars. I can guarantee you. And it's the same thing with Hershey. You know, he won two thousand eighteen the U twenty three World Title. That's going to get you a beefy rookie contract 
well in excess of that minimum salary. The minimum salary is like for new guys, you know, at least that's how much money you're going to get paid. Um, so, but that's not a cap. So we can assume that his salary was well above that. And then this 2021 season was supposed to be the third year of his contract. So, you know, they'll have to buy out that contract and then pay him on top of that. So that's what it looks like to me. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, you hit a lot of points I was going to hit on there, but it's sort of this is an interesting opportunity to talk about the machinations of contract buyouts, which is like you said, you know, young guys coming into the world tour, they sign an entry level contract, typically multi year, two year, maybe three year. Sounds like Hershey was on a three year, which, you know, shows that team uh, Sunweb had a lot of confidence in him. And, you know, oftentimes it's a new guy who people don't know very well. Yeah, it's this minimum. Uh, twenty nine thousand euro, thirty five thousand um, dollars. I'm I'm with you. I'm sure Hershey was getting paid more than that, but obviously he was not getting paid to the level that uh, you know someone who wins a Tour de France stage almost wins other Tour de France stages, wins Flesh Wallone, you know, podium at Liège Best on Liège. Like when you see this huge jump forward in performance during a guy's first cycle of uh, of a contract. That's when you see this very interesting dynamic of like a contract being annulled, bought out, and uh, and a bigger deal being out there. Um, I have a lot of questions that we don't really have the answer to right now. Like I would have loved to have um, known what the negotiation was like with Team DSM. Like, hey, you know, Hershey's on the team. He had this great year. He's kind of the face of the team. But he's a lot more valuable now. Uh, can we renegotiate this contract for a higher rate? I wonder if DSM was open to that and they simply just couldn't match the number or if DSM was like, no, we have this contract. It's a piece of paper. It's binding. Like, we're going to decide to try and honor that. Um, I just would have loved to have known what the market for Hershey was, knowing that he is technically under contract. But there is a precedent set from previous riders who have, you know, big explosive breakouts early in their in their first multi-year contract that like hey you can you can break it um and then i would have just yeah loved to have been a fly in the wall in those zoom calls where you know fabian cancellara is saying hey you know uh hershey's pretty valuable now he's he's the man like you gotta if you want to keep him you gotta ante up and you know them trying to say well we currently we technically do have him under contract um so yeah um, I, I'm sure it would have been an interesting uh, scene to see play out. Yeah, we've seen this a few times where uh, a rider gets on, on a two-year kind of neo-pro contract and then a team, after a, a strong first season, a team will expand on their contract uh, already almost at the end of that first season. I think that's my, what, what might have happened with Hershey um, because I know that's, that was, that's what happened with uh, Sepp Kuss. You know, He came in with two years with uh, Jumbo. And I remember uh, through that, after his first great season, they kind of renegotiated his contract for two years, which goes through the end of 2021 for SEP. And we've already been hearing in the grapevine, there's a lot of interest in SEP uh, going forward. So, you know, when you negotiate contracts, you know, uh, teams, they don't like to give too many years to a rider because you don't want to buy and spend too much money for a rider who might, uh, you know, lose the, lose the fire in their belly to train and to sacrifice and to work. Or a rider gets injured, or a rider who just suddenly can't win anymore. But then we've also seen teams that you know back in the day, uh, Androni used to do this with uh, Savio. You know, he he had Bernal under I think a four or five year contract, 
And that's what Vicente Belder used to do back in the Kelme days. He would get these young riders, sign them to long-term contracts, and play that off into the World Tour teams. And to get that, those World Tour teams to buy out their contracts. I don't think that's what happened with, with Sunweb. It was obviously a little bit different situation here with uh, Sunweb Team DSM. Uh, obviously, the, the context is a little bit different. But remember back in the day, Kelme had, I think, Valverde on a four- or five-year contract. And, of course, Valverde you know, quickly popped out and was world tour-level rider straight away. And, and uh, to get bought out of that contract, those kinds of teams can make a lot of money. And uh, But, yeah, you're right. I, like, I would like to know exactly how that went down because – you know, you'll come into a situation where you're probably making pretty decent money, but then you got an offer to make a lot more money. And if you're a professional writer, you know, I've had agents tell me that that's what their mantra is to their clients. It's like, you take the money now. Don't get loyal to teams because a team is going to tell you all these different things about, oh, you know, we've built a family here. We've done this. We've done this for you. We'll give you these opportunities. And an agent, you know, I mean, you have to balance those interests, but an agent's going to say, no, mate. You take the money now because you could plow into a stop sign in two years, break your leg, and never race again. So there's going to have that agent is always going to be there whispering in the writer's ear. It's like you can make a million dollars next year and you'll never make that kind of money again in your life. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to the wider conversation around uh, pro sports and labor and, you know, what people's motivation ultimately is. And I think that, you know, growing up, when you look at pro cycling or any pro sports, you sort of assume that all the athletes are in it to just like win and, you know, winning is the uh, primary motivation. And you start to realize, well, no, actually, you know, these pro careers aren't very long and the earning potential is so great for such a short period of time that these guys really do have to like, you know, you, you kind of owe it to yourself to try and cash in, strike while the iron is hot and earn as much as you can because you know that that window isn't going to be open very long. I mean, in pro football, like the average career is like three seasons long. Um, it's a little longer in other sports. But, you know, I think that this Hershey situation with the buyout um, sheds some light on cycling from a couple different dynamics when you think about it within that wider conversation. Um, one is it, it does sort of shed light on the hierarchy within the world tour of the teams, which is, you know, you see this in baseball, there's your Cleveland Indians and your New York Yankees. And, you know, some guy who comes up in the Cleveland Indians and is a really successful pitcher or a really good uh, third baseman or whatever, like at some point he's going to end up on the New York Yankees. Like Cleveland's not going to be able to offer him enough money or enough security or whatever. And the Yankees are going to come up and, and swoop him up. And we see that with, you know, this, this, potential UAE team Emirates coming in and swooping him up sort of really stamps UAE Emirates as one of the rich teams as you know up there with a Yumbo or an Ineos a, a team that has the resources and is sort of the Boston Red Sox New York Yankees LA Dodgers of the league um and then the second one is is yeah this this overall concept of like um of loyalty and of earning potential and of also just what does it mean for the rider? I mean, I think you could make a decent case that if Hershey were to stay at Team DSM, he is going to be unquestionably the star of that team. 
he's going to get all the opportunities he wants at the Tour de France and the classics and these other races. And he may not earn as much money, but he's going to have all the resources brought to bear on his personal ambitions. Now, if he goes to UAE Team Emirates, I don't know what that looks like, knowing that they have a bona fide Tour de France winner in Tade Pogacar. Something tells me that Hershey's not going to be like getting in breaks all the time and trying to win stages. And knowing that Pogacar and Hershey were, you know, together going up against each other in the finale at Liege, Bastogne Liege, and some of these spring classics, um, you know, he is taking the money, which is great, but I don't actually know what it's going to mean for his personal winning ambitions going forward. I mean, looking in your crystal ball, how do you see Hershey slotting in at UAE Team Emirates? Yeah, it's interesting. I think at first stroke, you're right about how uh, he certainly has the same kind of profile as Pogacar uh, with hilly classics and, uh, you know, being that rider in the big mountains. I mean, you really have to wonder if, if um, UAE or wherever he goes is, is offering him a little bit of uh, some runway to kind of spread his wings as a stage racer. Uh, I think Hershey has the total profile that he could become a pretty decent stage racer, uh, you know, maybe in a Grand Tour rider. So you could see him certainly having leadership opportunities at UAE, you know, in the one-week stage races, you know, you send, send Pogaccia to uh, Terreno and you can send Hershey to Paris and just let him race. You know, that's a race he could easily win uh, just based on his racing style right now. Uh, maybe he could develop into a Grand Tour rider. You know, Pogacar, he's going to be the tour guy for the next few years. So that leaves the Giro and the Welta some room there for Hershey to have his chances at those races, as well as, uh, yeah. And then maybe, you know, you see some conflict there in, in certain of the, of the monuments. But I think uh, a team like that, if you get into a winning team, you know, it's all about being in that winning position, right? That's what Enios has done so well is that if you're on that team, you know the team is going to be in position to win that race or the race that they go to. They're, they have a plan to win every race that they go to. And maybe you're not the number one guy, but maybe you're the number two guy, and the number one guy gets a flat, and then suddenly you're there. That's, look what happened with uh, uh, Teo at uh, the Giro d'Italia this year. He you know, won the Giro. He went to that race not really on anybody's radar, but he was on Enios, and they're so strong. And if you're just part of that larger working apparatus of that team, you're going to naturally get more opportunities even when – it might not seem like it if you're two, three, four down on the pecking order. So uh, I think it, it's it's it makes it makes sense to me in terms of you know like, like you said earlier that you know do you want to be in the Cleveland Indians? Do you want to be in the on the New York Yankees? And if you're a bike racer, you want to be on one of the big teams because they have a lot of advantages. Yeah, I mean, the other dynamic that I, I, I didn't take into account, too, is Roman Bardet joining that team. And, um, you know, Team DSM, it's sort of like, well, who is going to be the face of that team? All right, well, maybe Roman Bardet, Tease Benute, um, you know, this Jai Hindley guy. Maybe they had to pay Pony up and pay him a little bit more, you know, podium at the uh, – Giro d'Italia, like between Jai Hindley and Mark Hershey, you have two guys who are on probably smaller entry level contracts who both have these big step up, step up years and maybe are testing the waters out there. And at some point you just have to choose one or the other. So I, I'm not worried about Team DSM. While I do think this dynamic eh, kind of sheds some light on maybe they, they aren't the New York Yankees. They're a little bit closer to the Cleveland Indians of the uh, world tour. I think, uh, I think they're going to be okay. Um, Changing gears here, the other story I wanted to talk to you about, Hoodie, is um, Chris Froome and Israel Startup Nation. We have had our first glimpses 
of Chris Froome in an Israel Startup Nation kit. I think it looks pretty sharp. Um, it was a little jarring to see him not in a Sky Ineos kit. What was your reaction when you first saw Froome not in Sky for the first time in uh, in a decade? Yeah, it was it was it was kind of shocking to see uh, Froome in a different jersey. It was kind of like you know, is that like it's like Van Hagar after uh, David Lee Roth leaves the band, you know, or it's like. Mick Jagger trying to go solo and uh, leave behind the stones. So we'll just see if, if Froome has the same mojo that he had at, at Ineos and can rediscover that at Israel. I think it's a big challenge ahead of him. But I also think putting that jersey on, knowing Chris Froome a little bit, you know, just being around the guy and talking to people about how driven he is and how focused he is and how determined he is as a writer. I think by the fact, you know, putting on that jersey every day, you got to wonder, that's going to like give him some motivation because. You know, one of the reasons why he left that team is that Enios was obviously not guaranteeing him that he was going to be the center of that of that universe like he had been the previous seven, eight years. So he's going to have a little bit of uh, revenge in him. And by getting on that jersey every day, he's like, okay, you know, let's see if I can show it to these guys that they made a mistake. So that's going to be a big part of it for him psychologically. You know, let's see if he can deliver physically. Yeah, the other element of this story, and this was in Het Newsblad today, is um, he's actually been in Southern California for the last uh, few weeks and months doing training out there and doing rehab at the Red Bull Center in Santa Monica. And I've spoke to him, spoken to a number of athletes over the years that have um, rehabbed injuries and done training in that center, and, and they speak highly above it. I remember talking to Tim Johnson, cyclocrosser, one time, and he had like broken his ankle, and Red Bull you know, sent him down there, and he rehabbed it, and it, 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 it's this very advanced center for sports science and, and rehab. So it's interesting to see Froome spending some time there because, you know, from what I know, he does not have a personal endorsement with Red Bull, yet he's getting he's being given that opportunity. And, you know, the fact that in years past, during this time of year, we've seen Chris Froome, you know, in South Africa riding huge mega miles. We've seen him in like Monaco riding big miles. Um, but the fact that he's doing so in Southern California right now, I, I think is really interesting. We've seen Garrett Thomas, you know, spend his January's, February's in uh, riding around Santa Monica Mountains. And this year, it, it, it's Froome's turn. So if Froome does have uh, a return to form, I mean, it'll be interesting. The US of A played a little, uh, played a little role in that. Yeah, he's been there. Evidently, he went there about two weeks after the Welta. He brought his whole family, his, his, his children and his wife, and he's uh, got a house rented somewhere there, I think around uh, around Santa Monica. And he's... Uh, He's been putting in some big miles. I'm not sure if Cameron Worf is actually with him because he had mentioned when I talked to him that he probably would go to California. And so I wouldn't be surprised if those two have linked up and just doing some huge training rides. And the big challenge for Froome is to kind of get that strength back in his injured leg. You know, it's always when you're coming off a big break like that, the one leg is going to be stronger than the other. And that's what some sources on Israel were telling me that, uh, that that's the big challenge right now is for Froome not only to build up his uh, – riding capacity but it was also his overall physical strength and his core training getting his body working in one piece again and that's why they yeah they, they worked uh, with this red bull center and uh I'm, I'm pretty sure you're right i don't think he has a red bull uh, connection but i know that chris had some uh, uh context there and they've allowed him to come in there and use that facility and just get, kind of give him an open door to that facility there and it sounds like he's going to stay there he initially they were talking about seeing a Froome race at the Vuelta San Juan. Uh, but as we as we reported that the World Tour teams probably won't be making that trip, so they pulled that off his calendar. 
and uh, Israel Cycling uh, Startup Nation uh, physical trainer has been over there with Froome. And they say that he's making such good progress that he's going to stay in California and skip a team camp that's scheduled to begin in Girona, near Girona, Spain, uh, later this month. He's going to stay in the United States for another couple of weeks by himself and then link up with the teammates sometime in February. Uh, it's talked that he might race Ruta del Sol or the Vuelta Algarve, his first race back at the end of February of uh, 2021. So that's going to be very interesting to see how he can come back to racing. Yeah, I mean, I think that the interesting narrative to take in is, and yeah, I'm reading this story here too, what ISN is saying is basically he gets his injury last year or two years ago. Then last year when he gets on the bike because of the COVID shutdown, he really wasn't able to do the level of rehab that you need to do in conjunction with, you know, long training miles, like the off the bike stuff, you know, the, the strengthening of, you know, smaller muscle groups and of core and of stuff like that, all these muscles that atrophied when he was off the bike in the, in the hospital. And he didn't get to, you know, he didn't get to work that stuff out because of COVID because he didn't have access to training facilities and rehab facilities in Monaco. So he was just riding the bike. And because of that, he wasn't sort of the all round athlete that he's been. And so now being in Southern California, spending this time at this Red Bull center, he's like, you know, doing those weird exercises that, that, you know, strength and muscle groups that you and I don't even know how to pronounce them or where they are. We couldn't find them on the human body. We don't know what they do, but they're very important for stabilization and for anchoring the big muscle groups that then do the, you know, the pushing of the pedals. And so that's sort of the storyline that they have going on out there, which is, which is interesting. And you know what? Like, I, I, I buy it. Like, I believe it, you know? I mean, I know that in my experiences that as a very low level athlete, the times in which I have only done that one sport, it's sort of like you kind of have this ceiling you get to. And then if you spend time doing cross training and lifting weights and especially the core stuff, it's like once you have a stronger core um, stuff, everything is a little bit better. So if, if, and if we do see a stronger Chris Froome come out racing this year, I think it'd be safe to say that, yeah, like, I guess that this theory that they had that, you know, we really needed to spend a lot of time with him um, doing this type of training, um, that that was the secret to it. Um, I don't know. I think it adds a whole new dimension to the Froome comeback story because last year I feel like we left the Froome comeback story with kind of a bitter taste in our mouth where it was just like, wow, this guy barely finished the Welta and was like dropped every single day. He's never going to be the same guy. So, um, now we, now we can play the, will Froome get back to it question again? Yeah, I think it's going to be very interesting because it's exactly right. I mean, Froome coming out of that crash and going into those early races and his, you know, last summer coming back, you know, he, he, it was obviously, he wasn't going to be ready to race the tour and then they didn't bring him to the tour. That was a big story, but that was pretty obvious. And then at the Welta, when he came in, in fact, uh, I talked to Cameron Worf about this a little bit about how, you know, Froome, he said he said inside the team last year, the welter, there's never any expectation for Froome to perform in the GC. But Froome kind of just had, you know, that legacy with him. And, you know, he got shelled in those first couple of days and uh, said, he described how Chris was pretty kind of bummed out about it. And he felt like he let down his fans. He's feeling some media pressure. And they kind of rallied within the team. And they said, and Cameron Worth was saying that he spoke to uh, Froome and said, look, you needed to start at ground zero. You had to start at the very basics. So he said that Froome kind of just turned the switch in his mind and just started doing the work and pulling on the flats, working in the crosswinds, 
you know, setting the riders up and the and the final poles in these climbs, and then just peeling off and finishing the stage. But the idea was to get through that welter. I think that was a very important Grand Tour for Froome to get into his legs, you know, to finish 2020 with a Grand Tour, to complete a Grand Tour, because going back in time, you know, it was the 2018 Tour de France was the last Grand Tour that Froome had finished, you know, where he was third that year in the Tour after he won the Giro. So had he not done this that Welta in 2020, I think that would have been a very decisive factor in him going into this 2021 season. And, you know, We'll see. I think it'll become pretty apparent by, you know, by the Dauphiné if he's going to be in close enough range to even contend for the Tour de France. Ah, it's like Rocky. It's like a Rocky movie, you know? I love it. Uh, well, we uh, will keep our eyes on Chris Froome and Mark Hershey and Andrew Hood and Fred Dreyer and all the stars of cycling that we've mentioned on this podcast. Hey, Hoodie, thanks so much for calling in. Let's uh, catch up with Cameron Wirth and hear what he has to say about ridey biking and triathlon triathlonic. Right on. Thanks, Fred. I mean, the, um, you know, the idea was to, you know, get to improve more in the cycling to give you a better chance at Kona. Is that still, is that kind of still the mindset? You think that, that you can still get the most gains out of cycling for the overall, uh, you know, the three, the three disciplines of triathlon, that's where you can still stand to gain the most benefit by, by doing this. Well, it certainly has the biggest impact on the race. Um, obviously, I also need to improve my swim a bit to get me closer to be able to use the bike more effectively, particularly in Kona, where the guys are very fast at swimming. And obviously, since I've turned up and learned how to run, they're even faster again. They're probably putting more effort into that um, to, to get a bit of a gap on me. So, But it's, it's, not, it's not even so much about me trying to have a big ego about riding any faster. It's about you know having the weapon to potentially go just as fast but do it far easier because I've actually improved running so much to be able to execute a really fast run. So be able to do a bike leg that is a, a hard for everyone else to do, but then be much fresher than everyone else and be able to you know, um, execute a, a really good marathon and, and win. Because at the end of the day, that's how you win. You win the race on the run. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pointless to go hell for leather and gain an extra five minutes on the bike because that could cost you 10, 15 minutes in a marathon. You know, you blow up in a run and <laughs> there's nothing that can help you. You're really you, uh, you, you literally on your own two feet <laughs> as simple as, as you can put it so um that's that's really the key and you know the last couple of years i hadn't raced at you know world to a level for you know five six years the last couple of years in kona so i'd certainly lost that little extra edge that little extra bit where you want to accelerate and go a bit quicker and change the rhythm or pass riders or chase riders or whatever um those things are just going to take a lot less out of me now you know i'm just going to be far more used to that i mean you, you like yesterday you're chasing a lewis leon sanchez or an emmanuel Avetti. i mean oh my god that <laughs> that really sucks <laughs> that is um you know on, especially on the flat you, you know when they get a little gap and they get in their tuck and uh, you just see their calf muscles just bulging with horsepower it's uh I mean, it's beautiful to watch but also your legs just really aren't aren't enjoying it <laughs> you know trying to keep up so um you know having those little experiences again and having those muscle that muscle memory back that's what will make a big difference in an Ironman for me being able to you know ideally be able to dictate the pace even even more mm-hmm. and um and leave myself in a much better position when I get to the run so I can uh, I can make the most of my running which is 
which has obviously been the biggest improvement that I've had across three disciplines. Uh, just since coming back to the World Tour after uh, what 2013, um, everyone's talked about how the sports evolved and changed. What what have you seen, Cameron? Just being back inside, uh, you know, the Ineos bus and and being back at the Welta. What changes have you seen from say the last time you raced, uh, you know, 2012-13? Uh, the, the, the stand, I mean, the, the, the top guys, they're still similar. A lot of them are the same guys and obviously at a similar level. I mean, a Richie Port, you know, he's, he's still at the top, has been for a long time back when I was racing. I mean, yeah, of course he's improved, I guess, incrementally over the years, but it's more his consistency as being one of the better guys. The where I see a huge difference is for rider number four back to 140. Mm. That is so much tighter now. You know, I mean, you would, uh, you know, you do some turns on a climb at a, at a quite a high level and there'd be 10, 15 guys and now there's 55, 60 guys. You know, there's just every team is at a much better level. The whole pellet there is just far more depth and and you see that in the races. Why the racing is so exciting. No one dominates. You know, there's so much, so much closer. You never really know who, who's going to win. You know, I mean, an amazing win by Hugh Carthy yesterday. I mean, you know, and, and, and you know, a couple of days before that, obviously Roglic looked unbeatable, and but only by small margins. He's not winning by two, three minutes on a stage um, like we used to see. And um, yeah, it's it's great. I mean, it's it's so much more intensive when you're in there. You are. I mean, I used to be. Well, everyone, we always used to just uh, the break and go, run and have a chat, even during the, the process happening, people would be talking to each other and, you know, rolling along. I mean, now I ignore everyone during the race. <laughs> I just look forward, you know, obviously I have my assignment I'm given from the team, um, you know, to, to be in the right particular points of the race, be in the right spot at the right time, who to watch, who to follow. You know, when you've got a team like Movie Star and you're racing the Vuelta, you know at any second they can do something crazy like they've done on a number of occasions. So you, the moment they move, even things like I noticed, I look at what helmet they have on. When they have their aero helmet on on a, on a windy day, I know they're looking for crosswinds. So mm. all day I'm watching them. I'm watching Emmanuel Ovetti. I'm watching uh, Rojas because I know those guys are the ones that feed them into the echelon. I mean, it is so intense in the peloton and the level is just much higher. And I think that's why you see a lot more, sadly, you know, you see, you see some crashes um, in the bigger races. Um, you see a lot more fatigue of guys like guys that are just worn out, you know, and now got teams have 30 riders and, you know, they're struggling to field, field teams at the moment because there's just so many guys down, you know, and, and back in when I was racing, they were talking about numbers going down in teams. They wanted 25 riders, they wanted 23 riders. Mm. You know, now they're talking about, I think next year it goes up to 32 or, or potentially even more. You know, I mean, it, it's um, it's going back the other way. And, and, and I think justifiably because the level of competition is just – so much more intense. It's it's a it's dev- it's great. I mean, it's that's why the sport is is evolving so much. Is there's so many more people in the peloton that are on such a high level, it, it, but without the actual top level being a hell of a lot different. If that makes sense, you know, I think the improvements in times and things are a lot more down to technology and and gains, you know, um, or even nutrition. Just riders' ability to 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 perform at their best more frequently um, than they were able to in the past, and um, and the generational shift, obviously, of the young, youthful, youthful exuberance that are prepared to throw the, the the manual out the window and just go hell for leather. Yeah. Um, it just drags the, the level. I mean, we can't let them go. We've got to chase them. We've got to chase them. We've got to chase them. We've got to figure it out. And, uh, you know, everyone was sort of talking about Evnopol and, you know, and I, I said, well, from my perspective, when he got, he's just fearless. You know, I raced yeah. with him in our, in our Garth. 
The yeah. guy is fearless. He just doesn't care. He just has a crack. Yeah. The same as Vanderpol. The same as uh, the same as Wild Van Art. They just freak, they just races, and um, that's what we're doing now. Every day is racing. You know, the Tour de France ten years ago, even five years ago. How many stages? Let's be honest. You know, from Tuesday, I was talking about it with my masseur today. From Tuesday to Thursday, you generally didn't even bother tuning in because they were transitional stages where nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Whereas this year. You didn't want to miss a single second. The battle with Sargon and Bennett, the battle with Roglic and or Ineos and Jumbo Visma and Mark Hershey and Chasey. I mean, there was just stuff going on every damn day. And here at the Vuelta, it's been the same. It's been action-packed every single day. And uh, um, and that's that's how it should be. We're, we're here to race. You yeah. know? <laughs> it's no, it's, been, it's, it's not, a, not a procession. It's been an exciting Vuelta. I was just wondering, you know, you coming back into the World Tour – you know, as you mentioned, you know, just staying on the bunch, sitting on the wheels, that's a, a touch that you probably had lost perhaps, you know, by doing the triathlon thing for so many years. Was there any concern that you might have a crash that might, you know, impede your triathlon career because of uh, – how did you deal with that factor? Yeah, well, I did actually. There was a, a, a tour of Ohlone. There was some, a lot of crashes day two, and I got um, yeah, a, a bike just took my front wheel, and I went down pretty awkwardly, and I actually fell on my ribs and um, wasn't able to to run, you know, for for a number of weeks for quite a few for a few weeks, and and also swimming, I was uh, not able to do that at, a, at much of a level. So that was a bit of a nightmare, and obviously, you know, maybe Raiders realised that. Yeah, you know, looking ahead to Kona, we obviously need to make a you know once we know it's happening, uh, that's that's the one race you obviously need to give all the all the um, respect to to ensure that I'm healthy for the preparation without jeopardising that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know that's been the only spill I've had, and as I said, that wasn't. I mean, I can proudly say that definitely was not my fault. You know, I was um, I was uh, just sort of rolling along. There was a pile up beside me, and a bike just came from nowhere and took out my front wheel, but. I've actually felt quite comfortable in the bunch, much more so than I did in the past. And um, my coach, Tim Kerrison, believes that that's pretty normal because I now am not very, very used to riding along at 40 plus K an hour. I mean, in an Ironman, I'm doing 40 to 45 K an hour, depending on the, you know, the, the terrain. So to me, I'm very used to moving at high speeds um, and also controlling a time trial bike. There's a lot more control of a road bike. So mm, I think true. my bike handling is, has improved quite a lot. And here in the Vuelta, I've even led a lot of the descents. I've even gapped the field a few times, you know, following the motorbike and following the maps and all the things that I've, you know, learned in an Ironman because I've been at the front. Um, so, um, yeah, no, from a, from a technical standpoint, I've actually felt much more comfortable than I used to. And, um, and uh, yeah, and, and no one seems to complain about my, my riding style. In fact, to the contrary, most people say they're quite surprised at how comfortable I look. So, oh, good. Uh, so it's just, good, yeah. Before I let you go have dinner, it's one of that. I know you're quite uh, good friends with Chris Froome. Uh, how, do you, how is Chris getting through this welter? We, you know, we saw him uh, early in the race, you know, struggling, but, you know, he expected that as well. But uh, over the weekend, we saw Chris taking some long pulls. He must be getting stronger and more confident as the welter unfolds. Yeah, it was certainly a bit of a tough start for him, and um, yeah, I mean, as a friend, I'm glad I'm here with him, you know, and uh, to you know just keep his spirits and all that. I mean, he's a great champion, and obviously, when he came, he probably felt there was expectation that he was here as a leader and all of that. Whereas within the team, we never talked about him being a leader; it was all about Richard and and Chris knew that, but I guess the pressure from the media or the expectation. 
and so forth after the first couple of days. You could tell really weighed on him. You know, he was concerned about what people were, were thinking. And, and I said to him after the second day, I said uh, when, you know, or the third day, whenever we were, you know, I think he got, yeah, he, when he missed out in the echelon uh, on the on the descent, must have been day two. Um, day three, he was on the front and, um, and working with us. And I said, mate, the reality of the situation is you literally have to start again. You have to do everything. You have to do all that. You have to get dropped. You have to ride on the front. You have to do all those things you did 10 years ago to become a great bike rider again because you're literally starting from ground zero. You know, the guy really is. I mean, the fact that he's even able to race at this level is just a miracle. And and that was – and when he, he said, yeah, no, you're spot on right. You know, that's that's really right. You know, I wish – I thought I could be at a higher level, blah, 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 but that's the reality of the situation. And it seemed when he came to terms with that, every day he's put his hand up to want an assignment, to want to be there on the climb or want to be there on the flat or, you know, I'll worry about the crosswind here or, you know, he's always wanting a different role. And, and yesterday it was, you know, Dave B was the one that said, come on, Frimi, you know, you've, you've been you've, – you've made this mountain yours over the years. You know, you know how to step up here and, and really encouraged him. And um, once I got in that breakaway, I knew back there Froomey was going to be just sitting at the front, chomping at the bit, waiting for his opportunity to, to blow the race apart. And, you know, Chris Froome on the first week would not have got over those other climbs. Mm. But now he's just come along so much and it was just so great to see what he was doing yesterday. And then you add to that his knowledge that he just absolutely loves passing on. I mean, he loves being in this position, you know, with us leading the race and even riding on the front, the way he wants to ride on the front, knowing what it does, you know, you ride a certain way and what that does to the peloton, what that does to some of Richard's rivals because he's raced them over the years, you know. He just, experience is just second to none, obviously, in the current peloton in, in Grand Tours. And, um, yeah, he's just been an incredible, you know, wonderful teammate. And, uh, I mean, it's just awesome for me to be able to be here with him for his last race with the team and, um, and, and enjoy that with him and, and have that experience too and um, sit next to him on the bus. And, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I just – I have to – it's, if I really came, if I really thought about the reality of the situation I find myself in, I wouldn't even believe it. So uh, I got to pinch myself most days to, you know, <laughs> remind myself that this is the real world for me at the moment because it's just, uh, it's just been an amazing, amazing ride, and um, you know, it's a great atmosphere in the team, and you know, we're we're really determined to finish it off, you know, the yeah. best we possibly can. However that, however that transpires this week, you know, obviously things in Spain are a bit bit sketchy, so um, see how we go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, tomorrow's the big day with the time trial. Um, mm-hmm. What's the expectation for Richard uh, versus Roglic in that uh, time trial tomorrow? Well, I guess everyone's expectation would be that, you know, Rowich is a, one of the best time trials in the world. Richard certainly doesn't have that reputation. So he's, he's going to, um, he's going to have to fight very hard to defend his position. Um, uh, I don't think anyone would be too surprised if, if Roglic is, if Primoz is back in red by tomorrow night. But, mm. you know, a, a time trial in the third week of a grand tour at the end of the season is, uh, is very different to, you know, even in the third week of the Tour de France not that long ago. So, um, um, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see what happens, and um, and then uh, yeah, go, go go from there. You know, it's, it's been it's been nail biting the whole way since we started from day one. So um, I don't see that changing until we get to to the finale, where, wherever and however that looks. Yeah, hopefully we'll make it all the way to Madrid. Uh, every day is getting a little bit worse in Spain, but we'll, we'll see. Anyway, I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll let you go uh, get dinner and uh, appreciate the time, and thanks for the insight. It's good stuff. 
Pleasure, absolute pleasure. Any anytime, anytime. Right on, man. Good stuff. Hopefully, we'll see you at the races and at the triathlons next year, mate. (laughs) That'd be great. That'd be great. Right on, man. Appreciate it. Have a good night. No worries, Andrew. Catch ya. Cheers.